Did anyone grow up like making pilgrimages? Like, did you ever grow up with a, a pilgrimage? Anyone? No, no one. When I was a kid, we'd go to New Orleans pretty frequently to visit my great grandma Lichtenstein. And I, I vaguely remember the pilgrimage part of that, driving through the night, like through the Florida Panhandle, and like there was a tunnel around Mobile. I remember that. But what I do remember is the disciplined stops that we would always take at Mandina's to get fried oyster po'boys. That meant you got to New Orleans, right? Or when I graduated from seminary, I, I was gifted with a surprise pilgrimage to Fenway Park in Boston. Like, how cool, the, like the place, right? And a friend of mine just, just completed the, the a- Appalachian Trail um, from Georgia to Maine, February 9th, and he finished August 11th. All the while along his pilgrimage, he read Thomas Aquinas' Summa. How about that, right? But I think all these pilgrimages pale in comparison to my wife's childhood, and I did not run this by her. Just uh, never a good idea. That's free preaching advice for you seminarians. My in-laws always headed towards the YMCA Blue Ridge Assembly Center in Black Mountain, North Carolina, every summer. She attended a coach's camp. My sister-in-law is smiling. She's, she was part of that, too. They attended a coach's camp for most of the three decades of their lives, every summer. I got looped into this tradition. Later in college, we had some friends, and we'd lead the youth program for the camp. And I can tell you that that pilgrimage is really something special. Even now, we'll go back to Black Mountain, and sometimes we'll even bring our own kids back there, which is wild. And there's, a, there's like an immediacy. There's a, a remembrance. There's something more than nostalgia when we're on that mountain. There, it's almost a tangible memory each time um, where we recall things that happened the other times we were there. The ways that God showed himself to us annually, perennially. The ways he was faithful even when we weren't. The ways he was present even when we couldn't feel him. The ways he was calling even when we had muted him from our lives. Eugene Peterson wrote a, a Classically, this is like the first serious, I'd say the first serious book I ever read as a Christian. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and it's all about the Psalms of Ascent. He describes this pilgrim lifestyle, this sojourning, being on the move, but regularly drawing close to God through a place. Devout Jews would pilgrim every year, three times a year to Jerusalem. They'd go up. You always go up to Jerusalem, no matter where you're at. You go up to Jerusalem, to a place that physically signified God's presence, him dwelling with his people, David's royal city. Even a young Jesus made this commute with his parents. And we get that at the beginning of Luke's gospel. When the time came for their ritual cleansing in accordance with the law from Moses, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. From there, they met old blind Simeon. Do we remember this story? And Simeon grabs the young child in his arms and said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared the salvation in the presence of all peoples. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles in the glory of your people Israel. 
Israel's history as pilgrims was a little more of a mixed bag than Simeon's experience, though. What Peterson calls a sawtooth history, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, wonderful moments of steady faithfulness and participation in justice and salvation in the Lord, in wretched episodes of injustice, of infidelity, of hard-heartedness, of identity crises. I think we get this. <laughs> All the while, each time they return again to the Lord, they return to heed his call. They return to chart a history that probably looks a little like an EKG. It's a graph of their long-standing relationship. It's a friendship, even, with the one true God of Israel. Now, we count Jesus's Pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be tried and executed on the cross, that's also a pilgrimage. And it's maybe the pilgrimage that counts most for us. If you read Luke's gospel, there's a, really any of the gospels, especially Luke's, there's this turn where Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem. And that's the pilgrimage that makes our friendship with God possible. By the Spirit enlivening our spirits, by our measly faith joining into the fidelity of God shown to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Peterson reminds us that all persons of faith know we are sinners, doubters, and uneven performers on that sawtooth history. We're secure not because we're sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. That's good news this morning for us. God is sure of us. So when we read the scripture, we know that every good memory has to have a soundtrack, right? I still remember where I was and what I was doing when I listened to certain music. Does anyone have that experience? Yeah. We were talking about up there some of the songs today, like brought back some college uh, campus ministry experience and then that links on to something else and all of a sudden you're in the church sound booth talking about dashboard confessional and uh, it, it happens just this week someone reminded me of a record and I went back to listen to it and I could feel what it felt like to be driving in Virginia Beach in Hurricane Sandy in 2012 like I, because that's what I was listening to and so Israel had a songbook had a playlist, the Psalms, and we know Psalm 120 to Psalm 135 are these road songs, these Psalms of Ascent. These are the collective tunes God's people sang on their way up to meet God. These are freedom songs. These are not unlike the anthems they sang in the Civil Rights Movement. They remember their liberation from Egypt from Babylon, from whoever their oppressor du jour was, because that's Israel's story. So when they sang our psalm today, the people who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, never shaken, lasting forever. They were grounding themselves in their destination, in the solidity of who God is and how God is and God's very presence. Because in all honesty, they were shaky at times and shaken at times. This phrase, the people who trust are like Mount Zion, never shaken, never uh, lasting forever. If that sounds ambitious to us, it's because it is. (laughs) 
It should be our ambition. But how do you say this when you're shaken, right? How do you say this in a world where three-year-old Syrian children wash up on beaches? How do you say that we can't be shaken? How do you say this when you're suffering personally or your family, when you're suffering silently and no one else knows about it, some fear or some loss that you can't, you don't even feel like you can share it with people? How do you say, I'm not shaken? How does this sound when you don't have much confidence in anything, let alone yourself, not even God? How do you say those words? How can we mean this when many of you know on a week like this when a dear friend gets diagnosed out of the blue with stage four cancer and has to go in an operating room and leave her two-year-old son? How do you say that? Doesn't our, doesn't our faith in the Lord, doesn't our trust shield us from this sort of pain, this sort of suffering? But let's look closer at the promise. Mountains surround Jerusalem. That's how the Lord surrounds his people. Mountains surround Jerusalem. That's how the Lord surrounds his people. God's concern and his care for his people, for those who trust in him, those who have faith, is as solid as a mountain range. The very range that they had to walk through to get to their destination. These are ascent psalms. They're going up and they're going through these mountains are physically reminded how hard it is to get there, to penetrate God's city. I imagine they wore marks of that protection on their bodies and the blisters of their feet and the aches in their backs as they approach Jerusalem. This is the case every time we come to the Lord. We bear limps like Jacob after we wrestle with the angel and we're changed for it. We bear stigmata on our hands and on our feet and on our side as we grow more and more into images of little Christ, as we're conformed to his image, as we die little deaths to ourselves every day. And rather than coming to God with these injuries to accuse him, what have you done to me? We come to him with scar tissue. We come to him with scar tissue as testimonies of his faithfulness. His steady love for us, his gentle correction of us, and in Christ, his total identification. In Christ, he completely identified with us. He knows what it feels like, that he embodied what it means to, to shoulder our hurt. We may, we may not pilgrim like they used to, but we, we do, in some sense, pilgrim in this world right now. We sojourn in this land that despite there's some pretty awesome things, don't get me wrong, there's some pretty beautiful things, it never quite feels completely at home, this place that we're in, especially when things around us start to get shaky. The author of Hebrews writes about Abraham, whom is the, he's the father of God's people. Do you remember that story? And, and we share a little bit of the family resemblance to him when we have faith. Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, 
obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. I think that's like, if you'll bear with me for a minute, I think that's the irony of all this current like political rhetoric around immigration right now for us Christians. Is that we've known life as foreigners and aliens and live in a not yet perfected world, which C.S. Lewis calls the Shadowlands. And we're still a little displaced. Earlier in this week at morning prayer, a group of us were challenged by a quote from John Vanier, who founded Larsh Communities. He said, Jesus came to bring good news. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, not for those who serve the poor. Think, think about that for a second. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, not for those who serve the poor. I think we can only truly experience the presence of God. I think we can only meet Jesus, receive the good news in and through our own poverty because the kingdom of God belongs to the poor, the poor in spirit, the poor who are crying out for love. His is a great reminder to us that some great motivation, some of our best service can often be a defense mechanism, can be a Avoidance strategy from seeing our own brokenness, from feeling that, from really feeling that. Feeling our own poverty, drawing near to God because we need to, because our hands are empty and our hearts are open. I don't think Vanya would ever say don't serve people, don't alleviate suffering, don't be generous. I don't think that's his point at all. But that we must know our own pain know our own need, know our own suffering and hurt even more. We must know the pain and suffering that Christ bore on the cross for us, on our behalf, in our place, before anything else. Any good of us needs to flow out of that knowledge and that meeting of Jesus in our poverty. In the same way, we're disturbed this week if you've been watching news and like, you can watch this on your own time, but if you go to like Lakewood YMCA, it's really crazy that you can, you know, be on a treadmill and one monitor has like these Syrian refugees and another, the monitor next to it has like HGTV and like mansions getting made over, right? Isn't that sick? Um, but you, and you can chafe at like how politicians treat this stuff. But if, any consideration of refugees and immigrants must be funded by the reality that you and I were once and to some degree still are refugees and immigrants, right? That's what these road songs help remind us. That's what Israel knew when they were best being Israel. This is the core to the gospel. This is the good news. It's a message that's shot through the entirety of scripture. From Torah's directive in Leviticus 19, any immigrant that lives with you must be treated as if they were one of your citizens. You must love them as yourself because you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. To Jesus tells that challenging parable of the king, that, that he was a king in disguise and, and he you know, springs the, the trap on him and says, I was a stranger 
and you welcomed me. It was me. And this goes all the way into Paul's configuration for our very salvation, our justification, our sanctification, being inextricably linked to how we view ourselves in the world. In Ephesians 2, at that time you were without Christ. You were aliens rather than citizens of Israel and strangers to the covenants of God's promise. In this world you had no hope and no God. In light of how we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, Paul then says in Roman, later in Romans 12, contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. These psalms of ascent, like Psalm 125, help us remember who we are, who we've been and who we are to be. The mercy that we're called to show is bound up in the mercy that we've been shown. These songs remind us that we never graduate from being pilgrims on the move. If you're here today as someone who hasn't known what it's, part, what it's like to be part of God's people, if you've left that and are coming back to it, this is a call to know God's mercy, God's acceptance, his, his protection, to know his hospitality, his care, to join in on this pilgrimage, to sing these songs and join your voice and join yourself. Man, we like the beginning of that psalm. We don't like the end of these psalms. The, it like drastically switches. The wicked rod won't remain in the land given to the righteous so that they don't use their hands to do anything wrong. Lord, do good to people who are good, to those whose hearts are right. But as for those people who turn to their own twisted ways, may the Lord march them off with the evildoers. Peace on Israel. The psalm ends with a, a moral sorting, right? The sheeps and sheep and the goats, right? You don't have to just find like the quote-unquote psalms of imprecation to, to find this stuff. Like it pops up everywhere. And this is normally the part that gets muted when we read these psalms or when we memorize them. Rachel and I sing, or uh, we recite Psalm 139. It's so beautiful, you know. Lord, you search me and you know me, you know, when I sit, when I, yeah. And we do that before bedtime for our kids, but we stop right before, if you look up that psalm, we stop right before, if only, God, you would kill the wicked, if only murderers would get away from me, the people who talk about you, but only for wicked schemes, the people who are your enemies, who use their name as if it were no significance, don't, I hate Everyone who hates you, we don't use the word hate in this house. <laughs> don't I despise those who attack you? Yes, I hate them through and through. They become my enemies too. Isn't this the perfect note to end a three-year-old's bedtime routine? Can't you just hear that like in the bridge of the new Tomlin song on K-Love? Like, right? So why are these words here? Why... Before the last note of this song, Shalom al Yisrael, peace be on Israel, is such a cry for vindication and such a brutal one at that. Why is there such begging for wrongdoing to get addressed in such a drastic way? Well, simply 
for peace to be possible, justice must reign. And for justice to reign, for hope and healing to occur, sin and death must be defeated. This is the answer the Psalms anticipate when they use this language. That this anticipation of the Lord, the rightful king, returning to his rightful place, when all the impostures will be dethroned, when suffering ends, when all the ways God's good creation has been scorched and mistreated will be made right, when God's people will return home to God's new creation. And this isn't some pie-in-the-sky dream of harps and heaven. This is a garden city, a new Jerusalem coming down, heaven and earth eclipsing, being reunited, sin and death finally being gone. Every tear wiped out of every eye, the leaves of the tree of life containing the healing for the nations, our bodies, our bodies being raised to new life, eternal life, going up and going home to the new Jerusalem where we'll share perfect communion, perfect praise, an ongoing dance with our triune creator. This isn't some otherworldly vision. This is an anotherworldly vision. In that picture, sin and death in all its forms, anything that's not peace, shalom, the peace wrought through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, has no place. There's no place in this vision for that. So with the psalmist, we cry out. We hunger and we thirst. One theologian says, God intends the world to be put to rights. He has dramatically launched this project through Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus are called here and now in the power of the Spirit to be agents of this putting to rights purpose. Put right people joining in God's putting the world to rights. This is our mission. This is God's mission that through Christ we're joining in now. I mentioned earlier, in a couple weeks we have our first anniversary as a church. We met with a core team throughout last summer. uh, And then September 21st, 2014, we had our first Sunday meeting. The Lord is continuing to build this church community into a people in a place that this people experiences and expresses God's hope and healing and hospitality in and through Christ. And I hope this is in surprising ways that we continue to learn how to do this. Rich, a rich vision for this that we get from uh, Isaiah 61. Go back and read that as, as we prepare for our, our one-year anniversary. From this first year, I'm really proud of you guys. Like, I'm so proud uh, of y'all and some of the things that we've achieved this year or that we've done. I'm really energized to continue in this mission. And, and, and reading psalms like this give me a lot of prayers for us, right? Uh, the psalms give us, give us words to pray. And so I pray that we continue to learn how to hope like this psalm hopes for peace and justice and God's setting things right. I pray that that means that our 
that our hearts and our imaginations hum with this stuff, like that we're so um, amped about this that God's future starts to leap backwards into what we're doing and living and who we're uh, impacting in, in this neighborhood, in our jobs, in school, in our families, um, the vulnerable in our midst. Uh, I, I pray that, that that's all funded with this hope. I pray that we experience healing and that we offer it to others. Because, like we said, scars are the best testimonies. Words are good, but scars are better. Testimonies to the fact that God cares about us. God understands our hurts. Our best testimonies are our scars and that in the mold of Christ we can, we can be healed and we can become these wounded healers for people around us. One who, by the grace of God, have made it through really terrible hurt in some cases. And I pray that we grow in our ability to be hospitable. That means making room in our, in our hearts, in our programs, in our lives, in our families, in our space. To make room for those who aren't like us. But in some ways, for those who are a lot like us. Strangers to be made into friends, enemies to be reconciled, refugees to be welcomed home, neighbors to be made family. That's my prayer for y'all. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this pilgrim song. Lord, make us even more keenly aware of the ways that we're in this place that is not our home, but will be made our home when you return. Lord, um, tune our imaginations, tune our hungers and our thirst for your righteousness. Tune our, our hearts to hope the way you hope and for those things. Lord, help us come to you as as broken people looking for restoration. Help us leave our meetings with you as blessed people looking to be a blessing to others. We thank you for your words that by your spirit enlighten and empower us.